This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1972. And welcome and bienvenue podcast. We're talking cabaret. We're talking cabaret. We're talking cabaret. everybody, welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And every week on this show, we take one film from the AFI's top 100 films of all time list and look at them. We see, are they worthy of being on this list? How have they influenced the filmmakers of today? And do they still hold up? Uh, today we'll be talking about Cabaret, but last week we spoke about Easy Rider. And a lot of you had a lot of opinions about Easy Rider. But before we even get into that, Amy, let's tell them about this uh, amazing charity that we are behind right now. This is a, we're supporting a GoFundMe for small independent movie theaters. We are. It's called Art House America. And what they're doing is they are raising money to help support over 150 movie theaters across America, tiny indie movie theaters that are really hard hit by the shutdown. So they're raising money to help out the theaters themselves, to help out the employees. And we're trying to do what we can. So we created a shirt inspired by Rear Window. We thought that was kind of perfect. It says Indoor Adventure Squad. And it has uh, very ridiculous cartoons on it. And, and all of the profits for this shirt are going to go to straight to the charity. So we're just trying to figure out what we can do to create some fun indoor team raise money action. So if you like to stay clothed, let us help you stay clothed and donate exactly. money to charity at the same time to keep theaters alive. Give a little and get a little. That's the best kind of charity. And also, uh, if you have not been watching with us, our unspooled spool parties are now live on YouTube under the Earwolf channel. You can see Big and Clueless there. Uh, they've been a lot, a lot of fun. It's just kind of a fun way to keep us talking about movies and movies that maybe don't belong in this list, but definitely deserve to be talked about. Um, but let's talk about a movie that was on this list. Uh, <laughs> or maybe Easy Rider. should say people have voted does not belong on this list. Yeah, people, people do not who, like this movie. No, Easy Rider was not a fan favorite. Easy Rider seems like a good contender for a movie to take off when we finally get to redo this list. Um, I will say up front, I screwed something up. I got I'm very excited and I mistook a, a reference that Jack Nicholson says... Um, 
to D.H. Lawrence for T.E. Lawrence, the Lawrence of Lawrence of Arabia. I got so excited thinking it was a Lawrence of Arabia connection that it was more about dudes on like a disastrous like vision quest going across the desert. And I was like, oh, I got so excited to think that I could make that a parallel that I didn't think to realize that I should not make that parallel because I got my initials (laughs) completely screwed up. Well, you know, it's a simple mistake, Amy, and I, I like it your way better, even though it's not factually correct. I want to imagine that it is. Um, here's something that might be correct or might not be correct. Uh, the more you know, Brain 3R uh, wrote, I love the Easy Rider episode. When I toured the cemetery years ago, our guide told us that Dennis Hopper and company actually crawled inside that big crypt and played around with dried out human bones. Wow. <laughs> there you wow. go. I will say I have actually taken that tour. If you go to New Orleans, um, this is when I was there for the Overlook Festival, not the time that we were there last year, Paul, but mm-hmm. the time I was there the year before. Uh, you can take a tour of the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. And we had a tour guide who said all sorts of crazy stuff goes down there. And the totemic items they have found left at the Easy Rider tomb are pretty nuts. Uh, didn't say anything about playing with bones, though. That's a new one. So I don't know if she held out on me or what. <laughs> you know, different tour guides give you different tours. I mean, maybe she wasn't feeling like you could handle that. Maybe I can't handle that. <laughs> Lance Davis uh, cuts right to the chase and says, one of the most insufferable elements of this generation was the grotesque and humorless self-indulgence and Easy Rider showcases all of it. The worst. If I want to see a film that uses the highways of the Southwest to explore what it means to be an outlaw in America while also addressing the idea of post-war nuclear family, give me Raisin Arizona. Ooh, I do love Raisin Arizona. Give me Raisin Arizona. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and Sean Seibold also agreed. Like, he wrote, you know, the best parts of Easy Rider are the scenery and Jack Nicholson. Oh, and Jack Nicholson's helmet. Everything else, it isn't relative anymore. Maybe it was once to another older generation, but what's it saying now? Nothing worth hearing. It should not be on the AFI list. But Wickham Clayton disagrees. because goes, I used to love this movie in my early 20s. Revisiting now, 20 years later, I love it for all new reasons. I think it's not only outstanding, but represents a very specific moment, and it would be a shame to lose it. There's nothing quite like it. And for a list riddled with Hollywood power and gloss, this has a uniquely raw and independent feel and still manages to have an impact. And I, and I think I fell on that side, too. It, there are things about it that are, at times, masturbatory and, at times, feel like a, a masterpiece. It's true. And I want to say that I appreciate what Beth Richardson said when she wrote in, you know, because part of what I think seems really self-indulgent now is that the song cues are just so familiar. I'm like, do we have to hear Born to be Wild again? What's happening? And Beth provided a really important kind of mental corrective. She says, you know, just really remember, most of these songs were not big hits at the time. And it probably seems like it to people who have heard them a lot on oldie stations and ads. Guilty as charged. That is me. I've been raised in the post-Easier Elder world. And so I appreciate Beth writing it and saying, remember, this did feel raw. It is probably the marketers and people like Born to be Wild Pizza Delivery who have ruined this film a little bit for us. <laughs> yes. You know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And I think we see this time and time again on this list. Something that is so ingrained in our culture as being hack or just overused originated here. And these movies are not hack. They are the ones who originated it. So you have to give them props uh, on some level. Um you know, now, Amy, we did an interesting thing uh, last week. Was we asked people to sing for us. We love singing. I loved your singing at the beginning of this episode. And so uh, people called and did their best version of the MC from Cabaret singing that oh-so-famous song, Welcome. Let's take a listen to how people sound out there in quarantine. 
Meine Damen und Herren, meine Damen und Herren, Ladies und Gentlemen, guten Abend und zwar good evening. Wie geht's? Comment ça va? Do you feel good? Oui, that you do. So, life is disappointing? Forget it. In here, life is beautiful. The girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful. Welcome, bienvenue. Welcome. I want to say thank you so much for uh, not making me be the only um, the only person hanging myself out to dry right there. Paul, I think you're up. Okay. Welcome, bienvenue, welcome. <laughs> it's cabaret, it's cabaret, it's cabaret. Where, uh, what right, part of Germany go. are you from? <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm, uh, you know, from a very small part with a very intense accent, kind of piratey. <laughs> um, Amy, I think we should get into it. Uh, just a reminder, definitely, uh, if you want to support those small local theaters, please do. You could do it directly on their GoFundMe page, or you could just go to our T Public store. And without any further ado, please let us unspool it. <laughs> that is never going to sound like a normal thing to say. I'm walking here. It's 1972. The year is marked by tragedy and drama. A broad terrorist attack the Olympic Village at the Munich Olympics and kills 17 people. The British government declare a state of emergency due to a minor strike that lasts for 47 days. And in Washington, White House operatives break into the DNC headquarters at the Watergate Hotel. HBO launches its first subscription cable service. And... The Volkswagen Beetle becomes the first car to ever sell more than 15 million models. The hot movies are The Godfather, Pink Flamingos, and today's film, Cabaret. It comes in number 63 on AFI's top 100 list in 2007 and was unrepresented in the 1997 AFI list. So it's interesting. The first time on the board, let's take a listen to a clip from Cabaret. The day she died, the neighbors came to snicker. Well, that's what comes from too much pills and liquor. But when I saw her laid out like a queen, she was the happiest corpse I'd ever seen. I think of Elsie to this very day. I remember how she turned to me and said what good is sitting all alone in your room come hear the music play life is a cabaret old chum Come to the cabaret. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Cabaret. It is the story of a young man from England who shows up in Weimar, Germany in 1931, befriends his roommate slash 
love interest slash best friend slash gigantic personality, Sally Bowles, played by Liza Minnelli. The two of them romp through a Weimar Germany that's increasingly becoming more and more Nazified, um, a city that also seems to be packed with gold diggers. As at night, Sally goes to her cabaret that is headed over by the MC Joel Grey to sing songs that are very dramatically resonant about everything happening on screen. It is directed by Bob Fosse. It is written in a long chain of events. This is actually based on um, a novel by the great novelist and writer Christopher Escherwood when he lived in England and lived a story like this, knew a version of Sally Bowles, knew these people. And over the years since he first wrote his memoirs, um, it's been adapted into like I Am a Camera. It's been adapted into the stage Broadway show. This is another Broadway musical that we got going to Hollywood. And there's a lot to discuss what changes over the years. Yeah, you know, Amy, I have to say that we've talked about a lot of musicals on this show. And I think my complaint always is that musicals, a lot of the times that are on this list, feel like they're just straight up ripped from the stage and then put on film. And this is really a fascinating example of a musical that completely transforms from its, you know, from its Broadway version to this and obviously it's been through many versions like you said but this is a unique musical because it's not slavish to the material it, it kind of creates a film around the material and i think that's why this movie resonated at the time because it's the anti-musical and you know i think cabaret is known as the musical for people who hate musicals and i think this might be the movie musical for people who hate movie musicals <laughs> i mean i think that's fair because you know, Pauline Kael, who hated everything, loved Cabaret. And she said, and I pointed dig to our friends of The Sound of Music, after Cabaret, it should be a while before performers once again climb hills singing. You know, it, it did feel <laughs> like it came in and it was like the 70s version of a musical. Like it's dark, it's gritty. And it does something that I think um, it makes a choice that I think a lot of people who are iffy about musicals respect, which is the characters don't burst into singing when they're with each other. They're not like, I'm Sally and I have my feelings for you. Um, every song that you hear, every performance that you hear takes place on the stage. You know, it's a, it's a musical where all of the music happens in a musical setting and characters aren't just like singing for no reason, which I don't mind, but people do. No, and I don't mind that. Look, I am a fan of a Broadway musical. I love Broadway musicals. I love them on Broadway, but I feel like that's one type of medium. It's the same way that I feel about podcasts when people say like, oh, just make it into a show. It's like, well, no, no, that's a podcast. You can't just like turn it into a show. Like there is a certain connection and a certain medium that you have to, you appeal to. And I think that Broadway musicals are built for the stage. And I think film has to do something different. And we talked last week in our Easy Rider episode about how stylistically that movie did some really interesting things with the camera. This movie photographs these musical numbers in this electric way. I would argue that while there's so much going on in this movie and some very dark things, some very uh, cool, uh, I would even say queer things in this film, the thing that you really remember from it or that I take away from it and what is in the culture is all the things in the cabaret because the musical numbers are shot so wonderfully. I mean, it really is uh, electric. I mean, like Bob Fosse, who directed this, who kind of just got out of director jail because he directed Sweet Charity a little bit before, tried to do a little bit of this, but it didn't really work, uh, gets a chance to do it again and really kind of perfects this really engaging style. It made me connect to these songs in a way that I haven't really connected 
besides Singing in the Rain, which I felt like also bridged that gap a little bit. Because, yeah, and you're right. Because I feel like what those two movies have in common, Singing in the Rain and Cabaret, is that they're about performers who want to perform, who have this need to perform, who are doing songs in their house because they're practicing songs for when they go out in public, for when they sing. You know, they're, yeah. they actually are performing in their scenes for each other because that's what they do. That's what they like to do. And so, yeah, they, they do have kind of this creative thrust, you know, creative people who have to express themselves somehow. And I, and I love that you're talking about the camera work because I just think that's so perfect with this title, you know, that, that originally they had. You know, the opening line of what Isherwood wrote is this quote, I am a camera with its shutter open, quite passive recording, not thinking that he put himself always as the eyes watching people that he thought were more interesting than him, which mm. to be fair, there's a definitely a bit of that in the Michael York character. Like he shows up, everybody else is loud and crazy and he's kind of like prim and I teach English and I am shy and I'm nervous, but it is about this sense of watching, you know, absorbing and how do you take in just this world that's really hard to take in because everything is happening. You know, you're talking about this idea of capturing everything like a camera. What do you think about the opening and closing shot? You know, it's these images which are kind of a warped mirror, which I think is an interesting idea or metaphor for film. It's it's not exactly a mirror. It's a little bit distorted about how our life is. And the first time we're looking into it, Joel Gray interrupts our our look into this mirror and then kind of is talking right to us. And at the end, we go looking into the mirror and see the audience. So it's the perspectives change, but it's also what we're seeing in this kind of funhouse mirror. I, I don't have a fully formed idea about it, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about that idea of these reflections that we're seeing and how the film opens and closes. Yeah, no, I mean, in that opening shot, which I think you described so well, it's like it's like it's saying this is a reflection of what was, you know, that we're telling a story. You know, you're looking kind of black and white images that slowly come into color of the audience in the mirror in the opening shot. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's sort of like telling us you're looking into the past, but it's, you know, our version of the past, you know, black and white looking at the very, very beginning, you know, coming into life, bringing it to history. But but nothing is ever perfect. It's not an exact mirror. It's this mutated mirror. Right. Or it's also telling me that I'm the audience, you know, like I'm I'm reflected in the backdrop. It's like I'm standing right here. And then when Joel Gray pops up and he starts singing Welcome In, which we should play because I love that song so much. I've been singing in my house nonstop lately, even though there's nobody in my house but me and my cat. Um, <laughs> that that he's greeting us, you know, it felt mm. like he was it felt like he was welcoming me into the musical. Well, he looks like straight down the barrel of the lens, which is something that is so kind of rare you know very rarely do you have a character speaking to the audience and for that first I don't know 20 30 seconds it's to us and then it's to the audience but there is a deliberate switch there and I think we are we are being welcomed to the show I've seen the show on Broadway twice um I love it it's great um but you're very much a part of that cabaret audience I think that Fosse does an amazing job at uh putting you as an audience member in that club, but also treating this film as he's the MC for the movie, if that makes sense. You know, and I, and I think that's a really clever thing. He doesn't lean into it too much, just a little bit, but that first little bit of eye you know, contact uh, is powerful. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Fremde. 
étranger, stranger. Glücklich zu sehen, just wie Sanchante. Happy to see you, bleibe reste stehen. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome im Cabaret, au Cabaret, to Cabaret. I mean, a couple things that I just love about that song and the world that it sets up. I love that he is singing this song in three languages, you know, because mm. you get this sense of how cosmopolitan the, the city felt like right away, you know, how eclectic this audience is. And it just establishes that so quickly of what what a town Berlin is. You know, it's not this hermetic, angry city that it's going to become. Well, it's interesting on two levels, because you show this cosmopolitan city that is full of culture and people. And at the end, you look at the audience and the audience is mostly uh, German soldiers, mostly Nazis at the end. So you've seen how the town has changed. Now, I will say that uh, the original writers of the book, uh, Christopher Isherwood, uh, was very critical of how the film glamorized Weimar Berlin because in truth, that was a much more uh, impoverished town. It was not uh, a hub of cultural, uh, you know, elite. It was just a, a very poor small town, which tells a different story. And I think, you know, going back to the bigger picture here, I think that the the book is telling the story of an untalented singer trying to make it in a town where they will never really make it. Here, it seems like it's accessible, like that she could make it. It seems like she is in a world. So that's an interesting juxtaposition. But I do want to, I do want to talk to you a little bit about this MC character, because arguably, if you think of Cabaret, I think you're thinking of Joel Gray first. Am I wrong on that? Or like, I mean, obviously, Liza Minnelli, it's her career-defining performance. But you think of this song that we just played, I believe most people would think of this when you think of Cabaret. I think so. I think you get one of two flashes, right? If you mm-hmm. don't get his face right there, mm-hmm. you know, ghastly makeup, um, overdone, heavy, theatrical, you know, this like kind of creepster performance, you think of Liza Minnelli on a chair. It's like one of those two things for sure. Right, right. But... Well, but yeah, I mean, like when you go back and read about how he created this character, um, he talks about it a lot in his own memoir because he played the role on Broadway. Like he originated what this role was supposed to be. And he had the hardest time with it because, you know, the way that this whole thing is structured. The MC doesn't really interact that much with people. He's a major part of the story without being a major part of the story. You know, he doesn't really have dramatic scenes. He, it's kind of like the uh, the narrator from our town. I mean, in a very... Uh, base comparison it's it you know it's off to the side or or uh what is it even rocky horror picture show has a narrator <laughs> or at least the uh yeah the, yeah you know uh maybe <gasps> yeah. The, the yeah but i mean but that idea it, it's it is a a character who's like an audience conduit exactly but for joel the kind of question when he was trying to figure out what this role even looked like off the page you know was who is this guy? You know, there wasn't a lot in the script about who he was as a person, you know, or like how to even play him or or mm. what this guy was even like. And he said that to create the character, he just struggled with it. He could not figure out a personality that made sense for this man or like how he even performed the songs that he was singing until he remembered that, you know, in his own history of being like a traveling comic and a traveling performer, he was at, you know, some kind of dingy nightclub years before. And there was a comedian on stage that he hated. He hated this guy because this guy, he thought that this one comedian was incredibly pandering. Like he told a lot of homophobic jokes for one. 
that he felt like this man was just saying all these stupid, lame jokes to get the audience to love him and that he was willing to debase himself in any way to get laughs, to get cheap, cheap laughter. And he he was so disgusted by that man that he kind of never forgot him and he carried him in his heart. And suddenly he was like, that's who this cabaret man is. That's who the MC is. He will do mm. anything. He's absolutely soulless. He just needs applause. And so he like came and he did his first rehearsal just wearing what he felt like was almost this gross suit that he hated to put on. And he just changed his whole personality. He started like messing with the girls, using his cane to kind of lift up their dresses, being a pervert. And it made him feel sick to his stomach. And when he was finished, they were like, you nailed it. That's exactly who we realized this person is. Wow. And so he's playing this person that he hates, you know, that's like the embodiment of all show business that made him hate the business. It's interesting, though, because he puts this defining mark on a character that he is forever associated with. But, you know, he also goes on the record and says, Bob Fosse wanted to play this part. Bob Fosse didn't want me in this role. And I think that was so interesting because, you know, in Joel Gray's mind, he thought that Bob Fosse wanted to play the part himself, um, which is really kind of interesting and I think creates an interesting dynamic for this film because you have the director not liking or not wanting to kind of include the the narrator. I mean, he's not a narrator, but like the centerpiece of the film. And they had a lot of friction there. And I actually have a clip of Joel Gray talking about the first cut of Cabaret. I think Bob Fosse, as great a filmmaker as he is and was, uh, wanted to do no longer do musicals. Mm -hmm. So I think he was hopefully going to tell this story, which was so dark, mm -hmm. with very much less musical numbers, mm -hmm. so that the drama would, would be center, mm -hmm. the centerpiece. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did a, a cut, which, which is like the first time they put together the movie. And uh, we were invited to see it. And there were beginnings and ends of numbers and they were all chopped up. Nothing ever finished. Nothing mm -hmm. ever got applause mm -hmm. because there was no endings. Mm -hmm. But he thought he would just use it as like little, you know, moments right. to give a little musical something. And um, I was pretty upset. Mm -hmm. And I called the producer. He said, don't worry, I saw it last night. He says, it'll never be seen like that. And it never was again. And it never was again. Yeah, and that's so crazy because, you know, even before this movie came out, if you're a person who liked Broadway, you would know that Joel Gray's MC is major. I mean, he won a Tony for playing the cabaret MC. Like, he yeah. was a defining part. But I think there was so much competition. You know, Bob Fosse wanted to come in and make his complete own cabaret. You know, he, wanted, he was like, this is my cabaret. This is not that Broadway cabaret. I'm going to do it my way. And it was really, I think, symbolic to him to recast every single role. And so he tried to. He tried to cast, like, himself was one of the theories. You know, Ruth Buzzy was another theory. He, he wanted to put his own stamp on Cabaret. And the producers were basically like, no. And he came to this meeting, Bob Fosse, and threw a huge fit. And he was like, that's it. It's either Joel Grey or me. And they're like, we're taking Joel Grey then. He was like, what? It's so it was under duress, I think, that he was in there, which is such a bummer that he got so stuck in his own mindset of how he needed the film to be that he couldn't embrace what he had. I think he kept trying to get Joel Gray to do jazz hands. And Joel Gray was like, no, I'm not doing your little jazz hands. It's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because it's sort of like, 
I'm going to do everything my way. And I think for better or for worse, because I think there are things about that character in particular that you need to take. Because if you get rid of everything, then you have nothing. And then if you have nothing, then why are you doing it in the first place? It's sort of the way I feel about adaptations. Like, well, you can adapt so far, but if you lose the thrust of what you're adapting, then just create something completely original. It's like, you know, you can't just erase all the lines and say, this is still that. It's not. You're just taking the name and hoping that people will come to it because of that. Um, But, you know, I think what Joel Gray wanted and what Bob Fosse wanted may have been at odds to a certain extent. And I think Bob Fosse definitely was playing into this idea of like sexuality, right? Uh, There's a lot. I mean, there's so much in this movie that that is like I said earlier, like there's so many queer things in this movie that I love, like, and that are not shocking, but it's a mainstream movie and they're doing a lot of interesting things. Or at least to me, I was kind of surprised. Like, oh, I, I thought this was a little bit more down the down the middle. And and Bob Fosse saw the MC as this bisexual character. Like you mentioned, Joel Gray in his memoir, he came out as gay later. Bob Fosse always said he was attracted to men, but never acted on it. But I think there was this exploration of, sexuality. And I think that if anything, if I'm going to defend Bob Fosse here, is he probably wanted to push those themes even more and felt like if I bring in the guy who wins the Tony Award or won the Tony Award, I can't mold him to do the thing that I want to do, which is explore these bigger themes about, you know, sex and and attraction. And this movie has a very sweaty sexual feel to it in in many ways. You know, I wonder if what we're seeing here is the difference in the culture between the earlier 60s when the Broadway version existed in 1972. You know, in between those two things, we have things come out like Midnight Cowboy. You know, Mm. when when the Broadway version came out, they had to cut our... They didn't lean into a lot of the, out of, of the complicated sexual stuff because I think maybe they couldn't. Maybe they thought at the time that it, it was just too risky. You know, they couldn't even use the line that um, that Joel Gray's character says when he has that wonderful song about the ape, which, you know, can we yeah. just listen to the, the Joel Gray song oh, about the ape? You love know, it. It's a musical number. Joel Gray, he's dancing. He proposes to this beautiful per- ape in costume. And then he has this line at the end of it that they couldn't get away with in the 60s. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies and Gentlemen, I ask you, is it a crime to fall in love? Can one ever choose where the heart leads us? All we ask is ein bisschen Verständnis, a little understanding. Why can't the world leben und leben lassen? Live. Und let live. Oh, I understand your objection. I grant you the problem's not small. But if you could see it, so my eyes. She wouldn't look Jewish at all. I mean, they, that was what Joel Gray was supposed to say. And they were like, you can't, in in the Broadway version. And they were just like, you can't do it. It was getting taken the wrong way. You know, people thought that maybe they weren't sure what, what side he was on, if he was being anti-Semitic. 
And so I feel like there's a lot that they were able to do now because of things like Midnight Cowboy that they hadn't been able to do before. And oddly, I think that the ability to do more in the movie allows the Broadway play to open up because now the MC, or at least from what I've seen, uh, often is played by uh, a gay man, right? And and I think that those themes through the MC are much broader now. I, you know, I saw... I was at the Sam Mendes production of Cabaret with Alan Cumming, and it was amazing. And But there's a, a bigger embrace of bisexuality or fluid sexuality than I think Joel Grey does. I think Joel Grey does play it uh, not sexually straight, but kind of straight. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a perverse character, but it's, I don't think it's like aggressively leaning into sexual, uh, you know, like you can't really get a, a vibe of him one way or the other. It just sort of is... He feels more like what you're saying, like a, a perverted entertainer, you know, trying to work any angle. Whereas I think now, or at least in the in the two versions that I've seen, it's uh, that character now is much more of a, uh, you know, uh, is a conduit and 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 a lightning rod for like all the sexuality going on in the actual show. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's interesting because Joel Gray, he said that when he tried to come up with the interior biography for the MC. That mm-hmm. he decided that the MC was such a creep that he basically blackmailed all the girls and the guys into giving him sexual favors if they wanted st- stage time. Oh wow! And in a weird way, I don't see that in the in no. this character, at least not in the in the film version. You know, he just he seems just performative, you know, performative sexuality for for people. Yeah. But it's hard to see him as like genuinely lusty, even though all his musical numbers are so lusty. I know it he oddly is able to you know keep it a little bit at bay and I think that that's interesting and that also speaks again to the time and I think this Fosse version kind of bridges the old and the new um and going into that idea of old and new and going into the idea of old musicals and new musicals you know this is a very simple story and I'd I'd say we've seen versions of this story now like 3 or 4 times on this list you know Everything is going okay. And then, you know, the Nazis come in and things are a little bit weird, but it's going to be okay. And then it's not okay. And things change. You know, we're, we've experienced this story. And I think he takes a very generic story and makes it intensely, intensely personal. And I think that's what kind of transcends here for me or what connects me to these characters in this world is like, that is simply the backdrop, whereas I think a lot of these films that we've seen, uh, it, it becomes the background noise that becomes the, the, that takes over the whole movie, if, if that makes sense. No, I can buy that. And you know what I think is so impressive about how personal this film feels is that for a long time, the Michael York character is kind of the most boring person on screen, right? Oh, absolutely. It, he's supposed to be our emotional. It, it's almost like the Sophie's Choice problem, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, here's like this wild, really fun couple that are fascinating. And we're stuck with kind of the boring character who's just like, oh, wow. All right. You know, in the issue with style of I'm just recording what's happening. I'm just a witness to this whole world. It's like, man, Michael York's so dull. I don't want to be stuck with him. And the fact that you he's get to see so his. so dry. Yeah. Yeah. That you get to see his personality show up in little flashes or the, the way that he is manages to surprise Sally here. I like to play this early clip of him and Sally walking down the street, getting to know each other. And this sense of, OK, he's not quite the boring person you think he might be, but still I'm a bit on the fence about him. Now, tell me all about you. I want to hear 
everything. Everything? Absolutely everything. Well, uh, there's nothing very dramatic to tell. Well, since I came down from Cambridge, I... Leah Dupuddy. Absolutely my favorite screen siren. Well, when I left Cambridge... I'm going to be a great film star. <laughs> that is a booze and sex. Don't get me first. Do I shock you, darling? Not a bit. I don't? <laughs> I love how her voice falls that she doesn't shock him. You know, she's, yeah. She thinks she's walking down with a, str- a kind of square that she could impress. And he's like, ah. Then later on, he has that line, like, what is it? You're about as, as, as fatal as a dinner mint? I love that because <laughs> it also shows, I think, you know, it's all about perception, you know. And he looks like the most buttoned up character. And you reveal that he has a lot of stuff going on, whereas... Sally Bowles, our MC, are very out, very performative. You know, it, it's um, the idea that that the the people that are the quietest maybe have the not. I want. I don't want to say darkest secrets, like it's bad, but maybe have more things underneath the surface than we know because we're not because we just don't see it. And I think I think that that's true for a lot of performers. I think a lot of performers, and for lack of a better term here, I'm just saying, are performative. Like, want to show you everything. And, and you know, it's like, everything's on the line. And it, it like, even when they're crying, it's, you know, uh, you know, it's, it is about showing you that I'm crying. Whereas, you know, I think that some of our best writers are, you know, that can bring out the most emotion from you are very much like Michael York's character, just very straight laced and, you know, and, and not, and not performative. No, I think that's really true. Because you're right. As you were describing that, I was just thinking, you know, we learn later on in the movie that Sally has this affair with that Baron Maximilian. And then Michael York winds up having also his own dalliance with Maximilian, the, Ger- mm-hmm. the German Baron. And I, I'm so glad that this movie doesn't show us that scene, that it's not like a moment of, Oh, is he exploring something new with himself? Oh, this moment of discovery. It's not even about that. It's just like, this is his yeah. personality. It encompasses everything that he is. You know, we're not really going on a journey with him as he discovers who he is. He kind of just knows. He knows well, a little yeah. bit. Like, he's uncertain about women because, you know, there's rumblings underneath him under the surface. So it's it's not trying to milk. It's not trying to milk his desires. They're just there. No, yeah. well, it's like, yeah, when you first meet him, you know, she is trying to seduce him and he's like i've tried sleeping with women it it doesn't work for me like and then he does sleep with her and you're like oh this is the traditional hollywood thing he just needs to find the right woman and then you realize no 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 he's just a man who is a bisexual man who is you know yes she is works for him but so does maximilian and and i love that scene the dancing scene when they're away in that uh i want to call it a resort but when they're away and they're all kind of dancing together and their faces get so close in that moment that's like the most i think hypersexualized moment in the entire film it's like wow it's like it's so powerful and nothing ultimately is ha- i mean nothing physical is ultimately happening besides the proximity of them but reading it on all of their faces is is really uh i don't know it's very tantalizing i was like wow this is a this is a cool uh, they're doing some really cool things here and and i'm surprised that this movie is such a big hit because I guess people are ready to accept it then, you know, or see this movie in a way and, and, and embrace it, which I always feel like these movies to a certain extent kind of fall a little bit more on the outskirts and a little bit more niche. And this is a movie that kind of 
people are on on board with 100 percent. Yeah, I mean, it's startling, isn't it? How sexy this movie is without having really any sex in it. Yeah. You know, it's all it's all like post coital reference to but the but there's an energy to it where it feels like it feels like sweaty, like sexually sweaty or something like that. I don't know how to describe it more than that. It just like it just there's an air of it throughout the whole movie, you know, and they're living in it without showing you it. Yeah, like I mean, because what I love about that that scene you mentioned in particular, like all of them swirling around and him being kind of drunk in this sense of like woozy, anything can happen, is that, you know, Fosse chooses to stick with Sally Bowles' face as she decides whether or not she's going to let her boyfriend stay passed out on a couch and she's going to go sleep with the rich guy and try yeah. to get, the, get some money. And it's all about her choice and her emotion. You know, is she going to feel guilty about this? Does she feel any guilt about this? And And... When she walks off, it's like devastating and a little gross, but it's yeah. not like you don't see her be like, Maximilian, it is now time, you know, and take her shirt off or something. It's just, no, it's just her walking out of the room is all you need. Same way at the end, like after she gets the abortion, we don't know that she gets the abortion, but she gives the ball back to the child. And that, that scene is so, there's a weight to it, but this movie doesn't fall into melodramatic traps, even though it hits every melodramatic beat of every kind of uh, World War II drama that we've seen a million times, they avoid it. They just kind of, they do it, but subvert it. Um, and I think they do it by showing, not telling, you know, and and, uh, and that's what Dennis Hopper is talking about last week. Just drink the, you know, drink the water, smoke the cigarette. Don't act like you're smoking the cigarette. They just kind of, they're not overly performative here. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that, you know, I, I, as you said, I mean, I can understand that Isherwood felt that this movie didn't capture the poverty I, that he saw. And I'm sure his poverty looked a lot different than this. But I feel like this movie actually makes it translate, you know, that she that when they do have nice things, like when Sally has that gray fur coat, you know, that she suddenly shows up and it's missing. You, mm. You're aware of it missing, you know, and you're aware that that means she had to sell it to get the abortion. They have so few nice things that they do matter when they exist. You, you said, I, I feel like you feel their yeah. hunger here. I feel like what the movie does is show you a decline of Weimar Germany. It doesn't stay at one level and end at one level. And I think that that for a film, you need to kind of show a little bit of it, it's going it's trending downward you know, uh, slightly in little moments, or at least from the opening scene to the last, you feel like that it really changed. And I think you do need to see that. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Speaking of which, though, we keep on kind of talking about her, but not about the actress, which is Sally Bowles, uh, played by Liza Minnelli, who people, I guess, will say this is her her defining role. I mean, as, as much as this is Joel Gray's defining role, this is Liza Minnelli's, this is it. This is not her, you know, this is the first time we see her sing on screen. Am I right about that, right? Like, uh, you know, she she auditioned originally for the Broadway production of Cabaret, didn't get it. and. I think she is fantastic in it. I know that there's so much, you know, love for Liza Minnelli uh, 
I've never really connected to that, but uh, but here because I've never seen Cabaret before, I was like, oh, all right, I get it. I get she is doing so much in this movie, and she's absolutely wonderful, and and uh, and just gutting at the same time. I I want to try to say this in the nicest way possible. I feel like I've grown up in a world of Liza Minnelli is just a bit much and kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair thing to say? You know, I feel bad no, saying but, that out loud, but but she's no, but she that's, has the, never... that's the Elvis. That's the Elvis yeah. thing too. Like these people who were so big and they were this generation of of singers and they were they had flourishes to them. And you look at them and like when you look at like young Elvis, you're like, oh yeah, I get why people are obsessed. And I think, but we kind of start to remember them for the ridiculous things. Like for me, it's like Liza Minnelli. My first image of her is probably like Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development. And I know that that's probably the shittiest thing I could say. But it's sort of like you kind of remember this bastardized version of them, the the parody, the SNL sketch, like yeah. because they've become this other thing. They're not. Right. She's a parody. You know, she's been a parody of herself as long as I've been alive. And, you know, I pulled a clip of Lucille, too. Is there a, a girl in your life? <laughs> well, I would hardly call my mother a girl. But, yeah, she's still very much a part of my life. No, I- I mean, uh, someone who makes you hear music. She mostly likes talk radio. I mean, a girl who makes you feel romantic and also who makes you hear beautiful music. (laughs) (laughs) I think of her so much in that tenor of like nervous, desperate, please love me, please love me. Like Mm. I'm here aching for all of your devotion. She has this vulnerability that I think I've always found a little embarrassing to be around. Do you yeah. know? Like it, it made me feel uncomfortable. And I mean, her mom had a touch of that, which I think also made people care about her so much, you know, which made Dorothy just be this girl you want to hang out with and love and make her life get better. And there's something in Liza that's almost like this rippling, really, really oh, sticky, terrifying version of it yeah. that is perfectly cast here in cabaret for somebody like Sally Bowles that wants to be loved so much. And I didn't realize, I almost want to, I need to apologize to Liza Minnelli because I didn't realize that if you were in the audience in 1972, seeing her in this performance, you actually could full on expect that Liza Minnelli was going to be a huge star because by this point in her career, she'd already won a Tony when she was 19. She was the youngest person to ever win a Tony at that point. She had already been nominated for an actor, an Oscar when she was 23 and then here she is 26 winning an Oscar. And that's just like, boom, 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 boom. You had to think you were seeing the second coming, which is why it feels like a bummer that after this movie, she basically just got offered versions of Sally Bowles again. She did this so well that I don't think she got a chance to act really. But after this, this. Is I mean, the, this is the Julie Andrews problem too, which yeah. is like you do a character that becomes so defining that people connect with in some sort of a way that you start to lock yourself into a type of role. And I know there's an argument with Julie Andrews as far as Blake Edwards, but that was a very unique relationship, I think, uh, because that was somebody she was in a romantic relationship with. I just think that you, that at this time, it was like, again, do it again, photocopy again, or we can't, you're not this person, you're this person. They, they want to put you in a box and it's harder to break out of that box, I think, especially if you're a woman. Um, yeah, exactly. You know. I mean, and did you know, by the way, that she was named for a song that was a big hit in like 1929, 30, 31 period of this whole movie? No. Yeah. Here, I'm going to play a clip of it. It's called Liza, All the Clouds Will Run Away. Liza, 
a smile on me. All the clouds are all away. Liza, Liza, gonna delay. Come keep me company. And the clouds are all away. That was sung by the one and only Al Jolson, by the way, if you recognize that signature warble. Yes, I love it. And I wonder if there's a little bit of her in here about people feeling uncomfortable with the sense that Hollywood is now becoming like generational and nepotistic. That you have the Peter Fonda, you know, you have Jane Fonda. Now you have Judy Garland's daughter. You know, the whole first wave of actors is now having kids that are becoming stars. And I wonder if people are kind of uncomfortable with it, you know, because she was groomed for this. She always would say in interviews that she didn't want to become a star, that her parents didn't say she had to become a star. But when you look at her whole career, I mean, here she is with a person we know and love very well. In 1959, she's 13 years old, and she's on TV with Gene Kelly singing kind of an inappropriate love song. She is 13 here. Miss Liza Minnelli. For me and my gal, the birds are singing. For me and my gal, everybody's been knowing to when they're going, and for weeks I've been snowing. Ever since the inside, they're congregating. For me and my gal The parson's waiting For me and my gal And sometime We're gonna build a little home For two or three or four or more In love land For me and my gal I'm sorry. I absolutely adore Gene Kelly, but watching him hold hands with a 13-year-old as they sing a song about how they're going to have a lot of babies. <laughs> hey, you know what? You got to get it. You got to get it. <laughs> and so what's interesting is how stage managed it almost seems to feel, how inevitable or pushed or forced that she was going to become a star because she was supposed to make her movie debut in 1964, years before she actually did, with a movie that feels very much like her mother was saying, here you go, you're appointed. Hollywood is appointed because she was supposed to be the voice of a cartoon character of Dorothy in a cartoon called Journey Back to Oz that was supposed to come out in 1964, but it wound up not coming out till 1972. So it's supposed to be like, ta-da, meet Liza Minnelli. She's basically her mom all over again. Here, she even sounds like her. They don't believe me, Toto. They don't believe in the land of Oz. But you and I know better, don't we? Far from this Kansas prairie, there's a magic land. It's colorful and gay. A land where wonderful things happen. And you know, sometimes I wish I could go back there. Oh, just for a little while. To see all my friends again. There's a far away land. A far away daydreams and wishes and rainbows are planned why 
this as far as a star may seem Or as close as the ripples in a stream And then, of course, you have the whole thing about her dad, you know, Vincent Minnelli, like him being like a huge musical director doing, you know, An American in Paris and Gigi and Meet Me in St. Louis, you know, with her mom. I mean, he also designed her hair and makeup for this movie, her dad. Like, you know, that's how involved he was in this film, too. So, again, it's it's an interesting thing. Like, we don't want her to be it, but they are doing everything in their power to kind of push her into this box a little bit or help her in this box. Yeah, no, you're right. He he nudged her to look like Louise Brooks, who ah oh, just had one of the most iconic hairstyles of all time. That smooth little black black cap. Yeah, I just watched Death Becomes Her. You know, and Isabella oh, Rossellini yeah. in that movie is absolutely also doing the same thing. You know, channeling channeling that ultra glam Louise Brooks, who honestly did the same thing. Like she was an American actress, couldn't quite make it, went to Germany, which is where she shot um, Pandora's Box. And then okay. wound up having kind of like a, a Pandora's Box being the movie that made her super famous. And then wound up having this like really tragic whole story. She actually had an affair with um, with uh, Charlie Chaplin. You know, oh, um, she really? met him at the premiere of The Gold Rush, which I want to actually talk about again in a second. But yeah, had a really awful life and wound up having to sell herself um, later on to support herself. Um, but I wanted to ask you if like all of this kind of pressure surrounding Liza Minnelli. I don't even know if pressure is the right word because she seems to have been very happy about it, but all of this kind of setting up like she's this diamond in a ring. If in a weird way, it might not totally work for Sally Bowles just because of one thing, which is if she's supposed to be a failure, Liza's a really good singer. Like, is she too good of a singer? Is she too talented to be Sally Bowles? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's I think that that's the the big dig at the film. You know, the the book was based on this character. And I referenced this a little bit in the beginning that you know it was a an amateurish singer who had delusions of stardom. But you know, she is a good performer, and that's I think the problem that you always uh, you get into with these movies is like you want to show someone who's not good at it, and very rarely can you do it because they have to be electric. They have to be watchable it, it's a it's a tough thing you know not to reference arrested development again but you we know that uh job is a bad magician but it's hard to show like a a middling singer or somebody doesn't have a quite have it i for me who i don't i don't even have that much of an ear like when i would watch american idol i'm like i guess that was i mean that seems good to me but like nah that's not good at all like i don't know there i think it's hard to encapsulate that but yes i think that she uh, you know, I think she is better than this character. You believe that she's going to be famous. At least I do. You know, sad, but famous. Yeah, I mean, I think you get a sense for sure that she is delusional, you know, and maybe yeah. the delusional helps, like, she's so delusional about her life and about who she is as a person and, like, who she can get to do things for her that her delusional maybe spills over into her acting career. You know, she's so delusional yeah. about the Baron. You know, of course she's got to be this delusional about being a star. Because right. when she sings, she is just so good, you know? And I appreciate yeah. how the movie, like, let, lets her seem to be so phony. You know, the movie loves her or cares about her, but doesn't doesn't erase everything about her. You have that scene where they're at the Baron's dinner table, and you realize she's just telling the same old lies to people and the same old stories, and it's all starting to seem a little cheap and, and threadbare. You know, we can see through her right now. We don't think that she's 
as magnetic or compelling as she keeps trying to present to be, even to the people at this table, you know, talking about her dad, the ambassador. But all she's got is that, right? Like all she has is this persona, which, uh, you know, which we talked about is like quickly kind of sliced through like uh, like hot butter. By Brian, you know, in the beginning, like she she is alluring on stage. Like it, it's, I mean, I'm obsessed with like, all this idea of celebrity and like what you see in front of the camera and like what's behind the camera. And I think there are so many people that are front facing, like, you know, they, they can grab you, but then when you get them, uh, not alone, but when you see them off camera, they, they, there's nothing really there, there, but you're attracted to them for what they are kind of giving out. And I think that that's, you know, I think that that's, you know, if we're talking about a movie that's kind of deconstructing showbiz, it's a really a, a fun, interesting point to make something very different than Singing in the Rain does. Something very different than a movie like La La Land does. Although La La Land's not really about actors. I mean, a little bit. But, you know, whenever we do actor uh, films, you don't see this side, the sad, like, uh, you know, the sad kind of performer, like, I pick up my shit and I go over here and I'll sell my shit for this and I don't care. Like, you know, you don't, you don't see that kind of depressing version of it or that often, I don't think. Yeah, you know, I mean, the person that he based the Sally Bowles character on was an actress named Jean Ross who wound up becoming a film critic, actually. Uh, oh, wow. But she had been in a movie by this point. She was like a person in a harem. She did not get that much success, you know. Okay. Um, she played a person in a harem um, in a movie called Why Sailors Leave a Home. But I, I want to actually play just that clip because I think it's really funny because I think it also has to do, it, it feels very resonant mm-hmm. in a movie that's about the cost of people. Um, but she was this interesting character. You know, she was born in Alexandria. She had this really rich father and he kept trying to send her to all these fancy boarding schools and she hated them. So at one point she pretended that she was pregnant in order to get expelled from school so that she could go and try to be an actress. And she did live this Sally Bowles life. You know, she met Isherwood and a bunch of people in Germany. She and Isherwood are actually roommates and she got pregnant and she nearly died when she had an abortion. And she was a hardcore communist, which I love about her. She was the film critic for the paper, The Daily Worker, and she wrote under the pseudonym Peter Porcupine. I love it. I mean, she's also a war correspondent, right? In the Spanish Civil War. You know, it's crazy because kind of based on a true story, but she's got to live under this image of, I mean, Sally Bowles is a classic character in our in our world and 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 to know that you were based on it her partner Clyde uh, Cockburn described her as gentle cultivated and very beautiful not a bit like the vulgar vamp displayed by Liza Minnelli uh which I thought was really interesting and by the way Cockburn's uh, granddaughter is Olivia Wilde oh what oh I had no idea yeah huh how about that I mean, yeah, well, Jean Ross herself, I think she died the year after this movie came out and, and she forevermore became associated with with looking like Liza Minnelli. And it, she felt that the character, she thought she was anti-feminist. You know, Jean Ross, I think, is kind of saying what her friend was saying, yeah. you know, this wasn't how I acted. Yeah, I mean, but I think, again, you know, everyone, this is an interesting thing because early on I said, if you adapt something and you adapt it, you adapt it, then what is left of it? And, you know, here you have someone taking his real life experiences, writing about it and changing it to make it more dramatic, more interesting. And then you have a Broadway musical of it that's taking it and changing it to make it a little bit more palatable, make it a little bit more accessible to a 1960s Broadway audience. And you have Bob Fosse coming in and going, let's go back to the book, but let's change some other things and let's bring in some Broadway stuff, but get rid of some of the other Broadway stuff, like take out songs that become something else. Like this is 
this is an interesting piece of, I mean, it's not a true story, but it's an ever evolving story based on, I guess, what we can handle or, you know, what makes the most compelling story. And unfortunately, Sally Bowles character becomes worse on each version of it because I think it makes her a better story. Like, to make her desperate, to make her vulgar, to make her sing that song at the end of the movie and at the end of the play, the cabaret song, the most happy song, and under the backdrop of the most depressing, you know, like it's it's the perfect exposition of this character. You need her to land on that song. She can't have any any semblance of happiness for that finale to work. You know, what happened to Brian? Like, what's going to go on with her career? What's going on with the Nazis? I mean, we know what's going on with the Nazis, but the movie ends on this question mark and it's unhappy and it's sad. And it's this beautiful song about, you know, life is a cabaret. And this whole movie is about ignoring what's going on around you and just kind of it's, it's, it's embracing the inner narcissist. And she's got to be that narcissist. I mean, yeah, if there's ever a movie on this list that I think is more deserving of an American graffiti style ending, it's this yeah. one, right? You know, like, OK, the kids in American graffiti. Cool. Have their little epilogue. I want one at this one. Like, what happens to everybody? You know, where do they go? Like, who I love that dies? you don't know. I love that you don't know because it sort of doesn't even make a difference because to her, you know, it's going to be another one of these things. Like another, you know, it's like she's always going to get caught up in something like this. There's always going to be some turn of fate. You know, she's going to sell out something for something else. And uh, I think this movie does a great job of kind of showing you her patterns. It's not like she was great and then she fell from grace. It's like, no, she was shucking and jiving and she's shucking and jiving at the end. And she's and who knew who she was before this and where she'll be after. But it, it doesn't seem like a good spot, you know, and uh, it just seems like it's just going to like she doesn't even in a weird way. I feel like she doesn't even really care. I mean, the fact she didn't tell Brian about the abortion because she felt like he's being distant. You know, it's like she's making all these choices kind of in her own world so it's it's this character wouldn't have an epilogue i guess for other people because it does make a difference does that make sense yeah i mean it is hard for to imagine this character having an arc when she changes all of her minds and her decisions on the smallest things and she's like it's whims yeah. it's just one of my whims and abortion was just yeah. one of my whims you ignored three of my questions when i was talking to you in the meadow and so that's it changing our entire future that's yes. all what's happening now and I'm curious to know, you know, when you go and you really just do what you did and like list all of these adaptations, you know, the book to the first stage production, to the first movie, to the Broadway production, to this movie. I mean, that is telling the story over and over and over again. And it's really, when you think about it, not that long ago of a period piece. I mean, between just the very first, between like 1931 and the Hollywood movie of it, which is like way down the line, that's only mm -hmm. 41 years. I mean, that's like if we'd been telling the same story about the Carter administration over and over <laughs> and over again. What what is this hole? Do you think that this period that this time period has on people? It's a fascinating moment in culture where we changed. We didn't think anything of it. You know, this movie makes a point, and I think a very uh, astute point of saying like, oh, well, you know, the Nazis are good because they're going to tamp down them, and then we'll tamp down the Nazis. And you know, it's sort of like. This idea, like, we'll get it under control. And I think that's something that we are living in now. Like, okay, well, you know, we need to bring this person in because they'll do that. And then that, you know, and then, and, and, and things get out of control, like, uh, you know, a virus. It, it, it spreads. And all of a sudden, you're in it. And not to say the virus is in any way manufactured. I'm not making that uh, connection at all. I'm just saying that, like, this idea, like, 
oh, well, it'll be fine. And then it, and it becomes this and it becomes this. And all of a sudden, everything slips out from underneath you. And I think it's the one time in our culture that you're like, oh, my God, so much, you know, so much human death was associated with, you know, millions of people and in cultures and changed seemingly overnight. It's like, it's like, what happened to all of us? We didn't see this coming, you know, and I think, you know, or we saw it coming, but we didn't see it coming to the degree. It's, it's a very interesting moment, you know, and and I think more even interesting than a post 9-11 moment, I think, because it's, it's like, wait, we somehow, like, I think people feel culpable, like, how do we let this happen? And so you have to kind of explore it from all sides. And I think this is saying we explored it because we were living in this world where, like, don't worry about that. It'll be fine. Don't worry about that. As we're singing songs, we're watching like a Nazi beat somebody up in the street. You know, this like wonderful juxtaposition of like, and the band played on, you know, like that, like Titanic, the Titanic is going down. But, you know, that, I mean, that's my uneducated point of view of why I think people are attracted to it. It's just because it's like, we've, there's nothing else like that where the world changed around us and we all kind of let it happen or are aware of it, but not fully were able to do anything to stop it yeah i mean i think you're absolutely right except 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 what's so chilling about it is i always worry that we're in a moment like that now and even with the legacy of movies like cabaret saying hey guys don't get distracted it feels so much like this is history repeating you know and and that's terrifying when you start to really see the power that the nazis have in the countryside here is that kind of how they're represented in the film you know when they go, when they take the drive to the Baron's estate, then they stop at that beer garden. And you have, you know, the only song that takes place not in the cabaret, you know, yeah. but is still a performance. When you have the young child stand up, start singing the song, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which is yeah. chilling when you start to realize that he's a Nazi. You know, you the camera does that trick on us. You admire the kid's face. He seems a little bit intense, you know. Yeah. But it pans down and you start to see his his uniform. Then you start to see him give the salute. And then you see everybody in the beer garden sing along with him. With the exception like, of like oh, an old fuck. man who's yeah. like, oh, no. You still think you can control them? I mean, that, I mean, that is, I, I love that moment so much. And you know, that song tomorrow belongs to me was often mistaken for like a Nazi anthem because of how powerful it was kind of in this film. And, and it led to a little bit of like, uh, aggravation for the, for Candor and Ebb who wrote it, who, uh, were Jewish, but they were like viewed as being anti-Semitic, you know, um, which is so interesting too, but that, that's how powerful it is. It's like by putting by having a Nazi sing a song, you go, well, that's a Nazi song. And the film just seems to start spinning on its access after that. You know, like they've been able, they've been like Sally, they've been deluding themselves that it's getting that bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I think you see Michael York like really start to draw a line about what's okay and not okay. You know, he gets into the fist fight with the Nazis and he loses. And he yeah. he goes to his house and, you know, there's all of these old people who live in their rooming house that we've been kind of inclined to find charming. You know, Sally finds them charming, you know, the charming prostitute, the charming older couple who are nice to them. 
you know, these people who have been, you know, welcoming to the one major Jewish character that we have here from the beginning, you know, Natalia Landauer, the very rich drugstore or the very rich department store heiress, you know, played by Marissa Berenson, this lovely model. These people have been so deferential to her, so nice, start to realize that they're becoming Nazis. And you have this whole showdown between Michael York and these people that the movie has made us think are okay, now revealing themselves as Nazis. And I assure you, they are all in it together. If all the Jews are bankers, then how can they be communists too? Subtle, very subtle for cost. If they can't destroy us one way, they try the other. You don't really believe that, do you? But you read it every day in the Völkische Beobachter. That ridiculous Nazi tribe. It is an established fact, Herr Roberts, that there exists a well-organized international conspiracy of Jewish bankers and communists. It's also an established fact, Herr Ludwig, there exists another well-organized group of which you're obviously a member. The international conspiracy of horses' asses. Can we just borrow that? The uh, international conspiracy of horses' asses. <laughs> and again, you know, I think we're watching all these movies. We're seeing parallels to our culture today. We're seeing how these stories often ring true to us because I think we're always fighting something larger than us. Like how, you know, what? how is society being co-opted? You know, whether it's, you know, as simple as mom and pop stores being shut down because major corporations are coming in and, and taking them over to, you know, to something in your government, to something in law. You know, it, it doesn't have to be about Nazis, but it is a struggle of when everybody else is pointed in a different direction going, no, 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 but this is bad. And how do you get people's attention to it? And I think that, you know, back to your point from before, this is why these movies, I think, are so compelling. And it's interesting to me that this is the year that this movie is a huge success and it gets eight Oscars, which is crazy in the prime Oscars, but not Best Picture. Oddly, Best Picture goes to, and we, and we this is kind of a, a runner, it goes to a movie that's a little bit more mainstream. It goes to The Godfather, which is a fantastic movie, should, you know, get all the accolades that it gets. But this is a heavier movie. This is a, this is a, one that you have to wrestle with. And I would argue, even though it's not traditionally feel good, The Godfather is a little bit more comfort food in the way that's like, oh, The Godfather's on. Let's, let's watch The Godfather. You can get lost in The Godfather. This movie is, you have to wrestle with a little bit more. Uh, I just think that was interesting. I didn't realize it was that that was the year The Godfather won Best Picture, but this movie cleaned up at the Academy Awards. Yeah, I mean, Joel Grey wins Best Supporting Actor again, like he did at the Tonys at the Oscars, and he beats out Three people from The Godfather. He beats out James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino. He beats out Al Pacino in The Godfather for playing the MC. I mean, maybe they're splitting the vote. That would be the likeliest. Well, it's interesting. Guess. You know, it's yeah, it's 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 just an interesting split. You know, um, unfortunately, these two movies come out at the same time because I do think they're fighting each other. You, you know, and The Godfather wins the top prize, but uh, you know, Fosse wins for best director, which is uh, you know, I think very well deserved. Um, this movie, I think, is uh, it's hard. It's hard to like compare the two. They're very much apples and oranges. It is a, just an interesting thing that they both come out, but that but that it loses Best Picture when it wins so many other ones. I, I've never seen that happen before. 
I mean, it hasn't. I think it sent a record. I think that Cabaret sent, set a record for having the most Oscar wins, not even just nominations, the most Oscar wins, but also losing Best Picture. We're talking about a movie that's so dark. It's, you know, exposing sexuality. It's, it's talking about the Nazis. And I really think that it got power from where it was shot, um, which was it was shot on a very historic stage, which was the, um, the same stages where Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory were shot. And I feel like all those vibes that were there, yeah, Willy Wonka, the head, <laughs> the leader of the Nazi party, all those evil kids. So I just love that, like, the most uh, candy movie, wonderful, beautiful movie, then this moved in right after it. I love that, like, the, the, that vibe. You know, they're both about a fascist. They are. They, tru- they truly are. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So we are thrilled right now to have the coolest guest speaker for this episode. He's awesome. His name is Adam Pascal. His list of credits is so long, but I will just say he inaugurated the role of Roger in Rent. Um, from there, he went on to star in Aida. He starred in Chess. And then he went and closed out the Broadway run of the re-release of Cabaret. It was the third longest run of a revival in Broadway history. And Adam, you played the MC, And so I want to open up this chat by asking you, what is it like to open this show with that signature number? I mean... What is important to get right when the MC sets the tone? And what is that moment like for you? Um, well, you know, that, that, that particular show and that particular role came at a point in my career where, um, you know, I was actually sort of at a crossroads in my life where, you know, I grew up playing in rock bands. So doing musical theater was like, it was something that I, I was thrown into. Uh, I was in the right place at the right time. And, um, and so, but, you know, I had these like visions of like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a rock star. That's how I grew up, you know what I mean? Playing in rock bands. And so, um, but when, when the opportunity to play the MC uh, came along, that was a role that, um, and a show that I was so unbelievably enamored by. Um, and, and at the same time, terrified by. Uh, there's something about the role of the MC that always reminded me of characters like um, Frankenfurter from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like there was just something um, so unbelievably bizarre yet yet um, sort of enticing about this character. And I was and 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 just like Frankenfurter, um, I was repelled and drawn to this character at the same time. Um, w- when the show first opened uh, on Broadway. You know, and and then they started to sort of replace Alan Cumming with different actors. Uh, I had approached the producers, and I was like, I, I would love to do this. You know, I would love to do this. I would love to do this. Having no idea if I could do it, I had only ever done Aida and Rant up until that point. Um, but there was something about it that I was just so drawn to, and I was like, I think I could do something like this. Having no idea why I thought I could do something like that, it it, it required all of these skills that I didn't have. You know what I mean? Speaking with a German accent, uh, you know, doing massive amounts of core choreography, uh, being practically naked on stage, doing 10 minutes of improv at the top of the second act. You know what I mean? Like all of these things that were absolutely terrifying to me, but, but I, I, I wanted to do it. And I, and I was, I was drawn to it. Once I started rehearsing, uh, I realized how much work this was going to require. Um, and, but, but it was work that I was so excited to undertake. And I spent about, I would say, you know, 16 hours 
hours a day rehearsing, but you only had two weeks. You know, when you take over a role on Broadway, you get two weeks to learn it, no matter what the role is. And every number is a fully choreographed number. Um, and so I started rehearsing and I would be in the rehearsal room, you know, 12 hours a day. And then I would go home and I would rehearse, you know, for another five hours on my own in my living room. And there was something about uh, stepping into Studio 54 uh, in the world that they created um, and uh, putting on the costume and the makeup. And it changed my life in that it showed me uh, that, you know, this is, this is where I belong. I belong doing, you know, musical theater. I can't give this up. This is, this is the most unbelievable feeling and experience I've ever had. It showed me the value of hard work. You know, <laughs> I, I suppose up until that point, I was, uh, I was a fairly lazy person and can still, still be a fairly lazy person, uh, as evidenced by my behavior during this lockdown. But um, <laughs> I realized that if I put in the work, I can pull off a lot of things that I never thought that I could. What do you think the MC's role is in this show? Like what, what is all resting on his shoulders that, that's so important to get right? Um, I think he represents the danger in a lot of ways. He, he, he represents in, in, a, in, a, in a very sort of like symbolic way, obviously, but like there was always something that was really dangerous about that character. Not, not dangerous personally, but there was something that was sort of dangerous about all that he embodied. I mean, you know, he, um, and there was just something so odd and, and um, unnerving about him. He, he was representative of that danger and that unnervingness, that, that feeling of being unsettled, that all of the people who lived in Germany during that time who weren't Nazis and who didn't follow the doctrine of, of, uh, of, um, of Adolf Hitler, like the, the, the sense of impending darkness that was to come. I think he represented that. And so in a show where a lot of the music at times can seem... Well, I don't want to say lighthearted because nothing in the show is lighthearted, really. But like, um, I think that he 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 needed to be there to to be that to be that guide through what was to come, or that 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 sort of uh, the, the, that indicator of what was to come. That being said, he's not an evil character, and he's not a, a, a um, uh, you know a dangerous character in and of himself. I just think that the way he was created and, and what the purpose that he served was to be that. Did you decide when you played him that it was helpful for you to create, you know, I know some people like to create like a whole backstory for characters and imagine their entire life. But is this a character that you felt like benefited from being played as a real person or was it easier to play him as something else? Um, I'm not, because of the background and how I grew up and, and how I came into acting, I was never somebody and still I'm not somebody who creates backstories for characters. Um, it's just not in my nature. I find characters by literally physically putting myself in that, in, in that person. Again, the hair, the makeup, and with this character, it was so great because he, he's so physically different, you know? The hair, the makeup, the costumes, the accent, the walk, the movement, all of that stuff. It's like once I put on all of that, literally and metaphorically, there he is. It, for me, that's how he worked. That's how it worked. You know, there he is. Um, and, and, then, and then you combine that with the music, you know what I mean? And the songs and the performances and, and you know, the, and that's, that's who the character is. I mean, I asked this question as a person with makeup in my house and 
suddenly a lot of time on my hands. Yeah. Could you walk us through creating an MC face? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was so much more than an MC face. It was an MC everything. You know what I mean? I, so I would have to strip down to uh, my underwear. Um, and the first thing we would do is we would put this white I mean, it was white, full body makeup, but it was so. It, but it was it was like matte in 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 you know in tone. So it was like almost powdery, you know, in its look. So he you, he gets covered in 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 a, in a complete white sort of like um, this matte white look. You know, that's that's where it starts. You know, um, and that's basically head to toe. Um, and then um, and then they 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 wanted him to look like he was um, like a heroin addict. So all of these like uh, sort of track marked sort of looks and like the sort of veiny things get put on the arms, right? Um, and then uh, these these the, and then tattoos get put on, like the fake tattoos. So there was like a big spider on the neck, like like all things that like were not certainly representative of what somebody necessarily would have looked like at the time. Like this was definitely like a character that was created in a way out of time. Uh, then there was like a uh, sort of red, um, red uh, glittery makeup that gets put on the nipples. Right. And I remember very specifically um, my, my, my wife was pregnant with our second son at the time, but uh, my first son, my, my older son, Lennon, who was, uh, let's see, he was about two or three at the time. They would come to my dressing room sometimes when I was having my makeup put on. And by the way, I did none of this. Like I had a, a, a makeup guy named Monty who I actually, my, my second son is actually named Monty. Uh, but um, my, my makeup guy was named Monty, who I loved, and he would do everything. So I basically would stand there and he did my everything, my face, my body, everything. Um, but anyway, so we would do this makeup on my nipples and my son would my was crawling around on my desk and he would touch, put his finger in the makeup and, and do stuff. And I remember him putting him on his own chest, you know, with the red glittery glittery makeup so then so so like so then the body you know the body makeup would get done and then and then there was like bruising you know what i mean as a lot of sort of like junkies tend to have they have sort of like random bruises on their body you know what i mean um and so then there was like all these like fake bruising would get put on you know um and then and then the face you know the sort of the dark black eyes the, the jet black hair it was like a lot you know it took about 45 minutes to an hour to, to do the makeup every day um and uh but but again it's like that for me like that was like in a way like part of my meditative process and i didn't think about it that way at the time but looking back on it that's kind of what it was was my process of of getting into the character you know what i mean was, was transforming into the character so like when i was done and all that was done and the costume was put on and i would look in the mirror um and i'll send you guys a picture i have a picture i can send it to I you love of, it. Of, of me as 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 the uh as the mc I was like, there he is. You know what I mean? Like there, there he is. It's so, you know, I'm not the same person I was when I walked in the door, you know, an hour and a half ago, like this is a completely different person. Um, and, and so then, and, and that's, that was, that's how I found him. You know what I mean? It, during that process of physically transforming, you know? I mean, from the people that you saw who came to the show and came to the show and came to the show and, and helped make this, you know, the set records on Broadway. Yeah. What do you think is the staying power of this story? You know, that it's been told and retold and retold in so many ways. Well, the music is absolutely beautiful. That's, I mean, to, to, you know, at its, at its most basic, it's, the songs are beautiful. And they're, and they're so evocative in so many different ways of the time in Berlin during that time of what was going on, of these characters' struggle, of the, you know, um, again, what was to come, 
um, what was coming at literally at the time at the, that they were having these experiences. And it, it, it sucks you into a world as all great pieces such as this do. It's, it's, it's incredibly evocative. Um, and it, and it, and it, in a way, blocks out everything else for the for the brief amount of time that you're in it. You know what I mean? Um, and I and that's definitely what Cabaret did for me uh, as as a performer and as a and as a you know an audience uh, goer when I would see it and when I would watch the movie too. You know, and and it just it creates a world that, in a bizarre way, you want to be part of, even though look what was going on in this story and, and look where they were and look what they were experiencing. And the, and the, and again, the, the, you know, the rise of, 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 you know, the Nazis and the second, the second world war, like there was something about that you wanted to at least briefly be in that and experience it. You know what I mean? Not just watch it, but some, for, for some reason be in it. You wanted to interact with these characters. Literally you wanted to literally physically be in this space that they were in you know what i mean like and 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 again like that's great art does that to me it's it, it, it invokes you in that way and it wants you for a brief moment in time even things that are dangerous and scary and bad like it but it it, it, it you get pulled you want to be in it you want to experience you want to touch the things you want to like you know um and that's what it did for me you know what i mean i think that's what it did for the, for the audience and and with this production in particular the, the the physical world they created at Studio Fifty Four, they created you know the Kit Kat Club, they, this world that when you walked in you were there. So it gave that audience in many ways that that experience you know of of being in it, of being in this place. You know what I mean? In this physical space, you know, and that's why people kept coming back. That's why it was so appealing to an audience. It was like you weren't just sitting there watching something in front of you. You were in it. It was it was very immersive. You know, in that way. I love that. Adam, this has been so much fun. I hope you don't mind if I kind of put you on the spot and ask you, you know, kind of as a sign off to sing us out, you know, to sing us out with one of your favorite songs from Cabaret. And I'll make this dealer's choice. You can pick, yes. you can pick whatever song you'd love to sing. Uh, this was always one of my favorite songs uh, from the show. It's uh, Sally Bowles. Um, it's called Maybe This Time. Um, and, uh, you know, I got to stay, I got to be on stage and stand off on this spiral staircase and, you know, um, in this beautiful sort of like really dim blue pool of light and, and, you know, not draw focus from her, but be on stage and watch her sing it every night. Maybe this I'll be lucky. Maybe this time she'll stay. Maybe this time or the first time love won't hurry away. She will hold me fast and I'll be home at last. Not a loser anymore. Like the time, the time before. 
everybody loves a winner, but nobody loves me. Mr. Peaceful, Mr. Happy, that's what I long to be. Happen sometime, maybe this time, maybe this time I will. such a joy thank you so much well i hope you have a lovely quarantine oh thank you so much likewise likewise and i hope we're all out of it as soon as possible uh amy how has this movie received when it came out most people really really liked it i think it got a bit of the la la land treatment most people were super happy they adored it the people who didn't like it really didn't like it and went after it with some pretty vicious language you know, some people like um, Wilfred Sheed, he wrote for the New York Review of Books. His main issue with it was just that, you know, they keep doing versions of this story of Christopher Isherwood's Berlin stories and they're never getting it right. He said that Sally Bowles has turned up by now in every form but roller sca- skating ballet, <laughs> uh, which I would love to see her as a roller skating uh, ballet. Um, he said the people who adapt this film are just purveyors of mutton soup. So he was disgusted by it. But in terms of disgusting language, there is nobody who wrote a meaner piece about the movie than John Simon, a critic we've had here before mm-hmm. who passed away this year, um, who, as people who listened to our Annie Hall episode might remember, went so hard on Diane Keaton and said she ruined the movie, went incredibly hard on, no surprise, Liza Minnelli, who he called in this movie a, quote, irredeemable disaster. And that was maybe the nicest thing he said. Um, he called Liza, quote, Plain, ludicrously rather than pathetically plain, is what Miss Minnelli is. That turnipy nose overhanging a forward gaping mouth and hastily retreating chin. That bulbous cranium with eyes as big and as inexpressive as saucers. And giving a matching figure. Desperately uplifted breasts, waist indistinguishable from hips. You cannot play Sally Bowles, especially wow. if you have no talent. Miss Minnelli has only two things going for her, a father and mother who got her there in the first place, and tasteless reviewers and audiences who keep her there. She can't even sing Candor and Ebb's admittedly inferior songs. Whoa, what a fucking dude. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Always, always uh, slamming. Always slamming in really personal ways. I can't imagine being somebody as vulnerable as Liza Minnelli and then being made aware of that review. Oh, my God. Absolutely not. I mean, and this is why people, I think, have to disassociate themselves from, 
you know, reading reviews, it, it, like you, you, who can recover from that? Uh, yeah. No one. Um, but it's brutal. But, I mean, and, and by the time we hit like the ni- 1977, 78, she was, I think, considered a joke, basically. Like she, Variety wrote an article calling her box office poison. You know, movies like New York, New York had put this waft on her that she was a failure, that nobody wanted to see her anymore. They were just sick of her. And gosh, it reminds me almost of when people turned on Anne Hathaway so sharply. You know, mm. a person with who just radiates that, I will do my best here. Let me do my best. I've got this. And I love Anne Hathaway. I think Anne Hathaway is amazing. Amy, I mean, you're missing the, the perfect comparison, though, aren't you? I mean, oh. Renee Zellweger. Oh, yeah. Who winds up playing Judy Garland, which is also someone who is viewed kind of, you know, goes down in this flames, too, right? I mean, Judy Garland's kind of, you know, has a, a, the unceremonious end to her career as well, right? Yeah, yeah, very much. And she, you, Judy, I, I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe you should watch it in this quarantine zone. Hmm, she's, um, she has a lot of that just palpable anxiety on stage. And you see it. I mean, it's, it's not a flattering portrait. Liza actually has said she hasn't seen it, but it also seems to be kind of an accurate portrait. I mean, their whole dynamic is just wild. I mean, did you know, did you know, I didn't even know this. I'm sure there's a lot of Liza people who are like, of course, um, that, Liza's first husband was quietly known for having an affair with Judy Garland's fourth husband. Whoa, I did not know yeah, that. That's kind of crazy. And that when she leaves him and she marries again, her second husband is Jack Haley Jr., who is the son of the actor who played the Tin Man in Wizard of Oz. I mean, what what is that? That that makes me feel that makes me feel so so yeah. so like a like dusty all over. That's why I think this movie is so interesting. It's a real unvarnished look at showbiz. And uh, and I think, you know, someone like Bob Fosse is able to tell this story in a way that maybe other people weren't able to do or he believed that this story could be interesting to the masses. And it was, you know, there's there's drama to it. And uh, I think a lot of the times we would avoid telling stories like this, or at least at that time. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, I really do appreciate how he refused to glamorize the story, even though Israelwood people thought it was still glamorized. I mean, he asked his dancers in the background to gain weight. He asked them to eat huge breakfasts every day so they would look more normal and not like dancers. Wow. He banned them from shaving um, their armpits so that they'd all have hairy armpits, except Liza Minnelli. He let her That's shave a, her air parts. Yeah, Liza said you could tell she's a star because she's the only performer with shaved armpits. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the rap party, he gave everybody soap and a razor. He was like, okay, now you can look cubid again. Yeah. I mean, he had to, it, it's kind of funny too, that here he is, that the song Tomorrow Belongs to Me, for example, all of these German extras that he hired, especially the young kids, they all had these kind of rock star 70s haircuts. He had to bribe them to get shortcut Nazi haircuts, which they didn't really uh-huh. want to do so that they would look period authentic. And I didn't even think about this, but it's obvious when, when you do. That because he was using German extras for that scene, they didn't know English, most of them. So they had to teach them the song in English in order to sing the song in English for the American audiences who would understand it. And and then that number actually gets deleted when the movie is released in West Berlin. So, Amy, we've talked a lot about this movie. Obviously, there's cultural relevance. There are, you know, these are actors that are, you know, really associated with these characters. It's a big, big, big movie. But we can only judge a movie if it's good or not, if it's associated with a Simpsons clip. Is there a cabaret Simpsons clip? 
There is, and it is from the trusty episode that we keep having to come back to time and time again. I am absolutely indebted to the Simpsons writer who wrote A Star is Burns because they squoze everything into this one episode. Uh, Again, this is the uh, episode where Springfield is doing a movie film festival, and the person who is honoring Cabaret is none other than our beloved bartender, Mo. Mo Better Booze. Money gets you one more round. Drink it down, you stupid clown. Money gets you one more round. You're out on your ass. Whoa! Ah, my back! I should have said that he is made up exactly like Joel Grey with the little blush on his cheeks, and it's very suiting for him. And if you don't mind, that makes me want to play a clip of the actual song, the um, the money, 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 money song, which, by the way, side note before I play it, you know, this song is called Money, Money. The next year, Pink Floyd makes a song, Money. Then a couple of years later, ABBA makes a song, Money, Money, Money. Like, <laughs> did it start this money, money trend? I mean, we need to get it. I mean, you know, I'd look at like we can drive that all the way into uh, dire straits, right? You know, uh, uh, <laughs> I want my MTV. I talk about money in there too. Every a lot of money got to get in there. Come on, a lot of getting money, a lot of money. But what I thought was so funny about this uh, musical number, which is one of my favorites, they're tossing the coins back and forth, putting it in pants, putting it in bosoms, doing a lot of shaking. At one point, they basically describe the plot of the Chaplin movie, The Gold Rush. When you haven't any coal in your stove and you freeze in the winter and you curse to the victim that you faint. When you haven't any shoes on your feet, your coat's thin as paper and you look 30 pounds underweight. When you go to get a word of advice in the fat little pasta, he will tell you to love it ever more. But when hunger comes around, rat a rat a rat at the window. Okay, I'm probably yeah. pushing it a little bit, but no shoes on your feet. That's just too perfect. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Amy, what do you think? Does this film belong on the list? Oh, gosh. You know, as fun as it's been talking about it, I hadn't even asked myself that question yet, honestly. I, I, mm. It's kind of, I find this a harder question to answer than usual. You know, it's interesting. I really enjoy talking about it. It's one of those movies that I think the conversation around it and the uh, and the stylistic choices in it are really uh, are really impressive. I think my movie watching experience of it was fine, Uh, even though it hit all these notes. I think there there's something deeper there. I want to see it again. It's my wife's favorite. One of my wife's favorite movies. Um, it's funny because she always says every movie is her favorite movie. And she also puts uh, the Michael Douglas Demi Moore film Disclosure in the same category. I think it deserves to be on this list because of the three people that we talked about and what they brought to this film. Bob Fosse, who I think transitions movie musicals into this new form. It's beautifully done. Uh, I think Liza Minnelli, it's a defining performance. I think that what we know of Liza Minnelli is based on this movie. And and then I would say, you know, at the end of the day, Joel Grey is this, this that, that opening song of Cabaret. It's so ingrained in our culture. It, but it's hard. It, it, is a, it is a harder conversation. It's like, but for those reasons, I would say like, this does belong on the list. Um, I mean, if we asked Sophie's tough. Choice, I would feel more confident about leaving this on. 
Because I feel like yes. in both of them, you see kind of the creeping rise of fascism. You have mm-hmm. complicated love triangles. You have like women who are performing and being false and like capturing spells and men who are doing the same thing. And I w- would handily let that go off the list and keep cabaret. Absolutely. I mean, not even a brain, no brainer there. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, uh, I think, you know, cabaret walks so we could run in a weird way. You know, it's like the idea that it, it, it had so much impact on our culture. Um, and I would, I would, you know, I think that it's a, it, if this list is serving as a time capsule for different styles of film, you know, what West Side Story does is very different than what this does. And I like them as bookends. Like these are two things that happen roughly around the same time. And here's a very much like a stage adaptation through film. It is impressive. It's beautifully shot. And here is something that's completely unique. And then, you know, uh, Singing in the Rain is something that I think is kind of wonderful and magical. The same way like Wizard of Oz is. And those kind of live in this like technicolor area. Uh, you know, I don't know. That, there, there's a part of me. It, 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 it's an interesting conversation. I, I, maybe let's uh, let, it, uh, let our listeners take a crack at this. What do you guys think? I, you know, I, like, I think definitely it belongs on the list more than others, but it's not like a no-brainer for me. I mean, I wonder, you know, we have so many films I feel like are on this list because they were showing what the 70s were now going to be able to do, what like 1969 and 70 were going to let us get on screen. And I might trade a lot of the more violent ones for this. You know, like, great, great, well, yeah. great, great, great. You could be violent now. You can curse. Okay, cool, whatever. I would get rid of those and keep this. I mean, I would get rid uh, of... Yes. Yeah. Well, also, culturally, it's showing something that we haven't really seen. And yes, we're going to, uh, you know, Germany, but we're also seeing different types of people. Like, this is these are characters or a profession that we don't really see that much. You know, because Midnight Cowboy, it's like, Yes, they got they did some things that were different, but this movie is a little bit more forward with it. You know, I think Midnight Cowboy is still being a little coy, if you know, uh, in, in ways. That's true. And as much as I like Midnight Cowboy, it is still about people trying to make it in a city who can't. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So this this has actually been really fascinating to talk about this movie. Um, I'm so glad that I've seen it, uh, and I can't help but see the relevance of what's going on in that and in, in our society and and I think that these last handful of films from rear window to here you know all are bringing up different things for me and I, like and I I feel like that's the sign of a good film you know that there is some sort of emotional uh connection to it you know uh regardless of when you watch it so. it's true and this movie will let me uh finally have an excuse to make amends for a thing that I screwed up on an episode that I have yet to hear the end of on Twitter which is, um, do you remember when we did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? And I was like, what's that yes. crazy song? I, I think I said something like, I don't know that much about instruments, but I think it's like a theremin. Oh, and I had yes, a yes. million people write in and say, it's a saw, bitch. It's a saw. <sighs> hey, in this movie, we not only get to hear that same song, we get to see the saw. So here it is. I will never again forget that this song, that, that this sound is a saw. Love it. Forevermore, I shall know. Uh, that you have a saw. Well, you know what? Maybe next week we'll hear a saw as well because, Amy, we are taking a detour off our normal list because next week we are going to be joining the AFI Movie Club, the AFI, 
has invited us to participate in their uh, new series, which is a um, they're basically helping people get through this uh, hashtag stay home period by, you know, showing films on the AFI list and having amazing introductions from uh, wonderful people. Uh, Robert De Niro's introducing films. Uh, we're going to be introducing films. You know, you always think about, you know, De Niro and Nicholson together in the same, uh, you know, uh, in the same sentence. And I mean, Amy, not Jack. Um, and uh, and next week, we're going to be hosting the AFI Movie Club for a little film called Yankee Doodle Dandy. So going from Cabaret to Yankee Doodle Dandy. And this is going to be a really interesting juxtaposition. And we just talked about the other musicals on this list. And I think this is going to maybe end our musical run here. But um, you can watch us next week on AFI.com as we'll be talking about Yankee Doodle Dandy. And then you can listen to our episode next week about Yankee Doodle Dandy. So we're going to be a part of that. And there's a whole conversation going on at hashtag AFI Movie Club. And if you don't know anything about this film, I will tell you one fact. Two facts. They They are combined. It stars tough guy Jimmy Cagney and... He dances. Oh, he dances so good in this movie. So that is the inspiration for this week's call to action. We want you to tell us what modern tough guy actor do you think is secretly a really slick dancer? Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah. Let me just go out online and say Vin Diesel. Um, but I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Give us a call at 747-666-5824. Um all right, Amy, we will see you next week for a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Uh, I am sad to close the door on Cabaret, but we're just jumping right into another musical, so can't wait. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.